Well, good morning. We're about to continue, actually, I was going to say finish, but we're not going to finish. We're going to continue in the story of Joseph, which we've called Broken Dreams. The interesting thing about Joseph when it comes to broken dreams is that we look If you weren't to read the Old Testament for a while and you think about Joseph, you would probably remember that he interpreted a lot of dreams. And and you don't realize it's actually a small part of his life. And what you might not realize is most of the dreams that he interpreted actually turned out poorly for Joseph. It wasn't a blessing he experienced necessarily. What it was, it was something that actually caused harm. And so the broken dreams actually uh, is pretty a pretty clever name that I didn't come up with, but I wish I did for this sermon series. And in fact, you probably remember what it's like to have your dream broken as you were sleeping through the night. Have you ever, and and you can raise your hand or you can yell hallelujah, I'm not sure if you're that type of church member, but just listen to me. If you happen to have a dream where as you were finishing your dream, all of a sudden you heard something coming from somewhere else and it inputted, inserted itself, that noise, that sound, inserted itself into your dream and it changed your dream to the point that it startled you and you woke up. Have you ever experienced this? Some of you have. I've certainly experienced it. I heard one hallelujah. That's pretty good. But here's the deal. I guarantee you, you have not heard a dream broken up like this. My dad went to Delta State University, which is in the middle of the Mississippi Delta. There's no such thing as street lights. Everybody just walks around with candles still and lanterns. And so what happens is when you drive at night, you have no lights from the outside. The only total reflection that you might see in the middle of the delta when you're driving on a highway are the, the reflections of a deer looking at you. And those are ones you don't want to see. And you slow down, you learn how to avoid them. You city people probably don't know what it's like to try to weave in and out a deer as they cross over the highway at night in the cold. But I'm telling you, it's a real thing. And that's why so many of them get hit is because they see the light and they get startled and they start moving. So, my dad, driving back to the college campus after going home for the weekend with uh, his friend Barry, who came to visit him. And Barry was riding in the passenger seat. My dad had this wonderful station wagon, wagon, which he uh, affectionately called the White Lightning. And it was such a pristine piece of instrument that you could lift up the floorboard and you could see the road as it went by. It was unbelievable. You could actually drop things right there and no one would know you littered because back then for some reason littering was okay. That was a terrible joke. We're going to edit that out. But here's the deal. What happened was my dad was driving at night and Barry took this as an opportunity to take a nap. Because what a better place to take a nap than in a little white lightning uh, station wagon that you can't see out the windows of anyway other than the road. It's about a three-hour trip from my dad's house up to this place. And as they're driving along, Barry is sound asleep. All of a sudden, an owl, this is a true story, an owl swoops down for something and my dad's windshield hits him and he comes through the windshield and he lands on Barry's lap. Barry's dream is startled. He hears the sound. He does not think it's an owl that comes through a windshield. He thinks it's a car wreck. And he reaches down and he feels this bloody owl and he thinks that's my dad's head. 
And so he throws my dad's head on the floor and he goes to get out of the car driving 55 miles an hour down the road. My dad leans over and grabs him and tries to convince him that he's still alive and not some sort of weird uh, situation where a headless man is grabbing him and pulls him back in, calms him down. They pull over and they talk about it. His dream was absolutely startled to the point where he woke up and he experienced something that he was making up in his mind. I tell that story because Joseph did not go through any of that. What I tell you is that Joseph did have the unique opportunity to explain to people what their dreams were to give glory to God. And what you find out is that even in the midst of giving glory to God, through this dream interpretation, he didn't necessarily experience blessing immediately. But maybe God was preparing him for something else. Because it didn't happen according to Joseph's timing. It happened according to God's timing. Sometimes it's hard for us to wait on God's timing. We don't even fully understand it when we say it's in God's timing, do we? We don't know when that time will end. We don't know when the trial and the testing will go on. We don't know what he's preparing us for in the future or even if it's for us or for someone else. We have to walk in faith with God's timing, knowing that his timing is perfect and our timing isn't, no matter what our desires are. And it's hard to do that. But luckily there's passages like Romans 5 that tell us that there's a benefit to waiting. Because waiting on God's timing provides perseverance. Perseverance strengthens our character. And character helps us hope on what's to come. I would say that models Joseph's life. As that his life was one of perseverance. That strengthened his character. Where he hoped for a better future. When we last left Joseph, we left him in chapter 39. So we're going to be starting in verse or chapter 40 of the book of Genesis. So you can go ahead and turn. Uh, Joseph was just thrown in jail in chapter 39. This story picks up about 10 to 11 years later. So he's been in prison that long. And as you know, Joseph was actually thrown in for a reason he shouldn't have been thrown in for. But he's experiencing this. He's experiencing this injustice and this, this, this imprisonment, this hostility, and this situation that he didn't deserve. So Joseph was probably looking for a way to get out. Which leads us to this first section, which I call Joseph's failed plan. Joseph's failed plan. Sometime later, Verse 1, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had the same or had a dream the same night. And each dream had its own meaning. 
When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected, so he asked the Pharaoh officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad? We both had dreams, they answered, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not all interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. We just discussed it was about 10 years later. And 10 years later, two officials from the king's service actually were thrown in prison as well. Most people think that it was probably something to do with someone attempting to poison the Pharaoh, poison the king. And so you would take the people that were uh, closest to him that possibly could have attempted to do that, or they had the role to stop that from happening. He threw them in prison because he wasn't sure who it was. And so the cupbearer, which you are probably familiar with, with reading it in scripture, would actually take the cup that the king would, um, the king would drink from, and then he would always make sure it was cleaned out. He would always make sure he was the one that filled it or he watched was filled it. He would always taste what was being filled into the cup and so that if he killed over and died, the Pharaoh would not kill over and died. He offered his life as a service to the king. And so it was a very important position. In fact, most likely he became a confidant of the king because he was always in the presence of the king and taking care of him. He also would protect the cup to make sure no one else would touch it. And so he was pretty important to the king in that role. The other one was the baker. You might not know this about bakers, but the bakers also were in control of the kitchen and what came out of Egypt. Most of the food that was brought to him probably had some sort of baking needs, some sort of bread or some sort of cake that was brought before the king, and that's what they would eat. And so he was also in charge of making sure the ingredients that went in and what was put together was also one that would not kill the king. So he would often taste it in the presence of the king or the officials to make sure that the king was not poisoned from it. It's a pretty specific job, but fairly important. In fact, they were given the title of officials. This is the same title in the same category that Potiphar was. Potiphar, who was the one that actually his wife was the one that accused Joseph. And so you have people of the same level, and they most likely they know each other. And so they are thrown in custody. In fact, in verse 4, where it says the captain of guard signed them to Joseph, the captain guard also had the same level of official in the kingdom. So they probably all knew each other. But what's interesting about this is that Joseph is given an opportunity to be a leader in the jail cell. This is what Joseph's life should be remembered for, honestly. More so than the dream interpretations. His ability to be prepared to be in this situation. You see, all of his life, he was given opportunity to be a strategic leader alongside someone else that was an owner. If you think of it, when he was a young boy, he was put in the position of this in his household. There were older sons from another woman, but he was the oldest from the woman that his father loved. And so Joseph was being groomed to take over and to run the family organization. 
Now, you might have thought that that family organization was a small organization. It was not. It came with sheep, camels, cattle. It came with lands. It came with houses. It came with servants. It came with others. And Joseph was the one that would be sent out to go to these places to see what was going on and report back. He was probably the best note taker, the best Excel spreadsheet maker. He was the one that could check off everything that was going on. And so he was responsible for going out and seeing what was going on and reporting it back to his father. He's being prepared for that. Then when he got thrown into slavery, he went to Potiphar's house and uh, Potiphar took him and put him in charge of the whole household. He also learned how to run a household in, for Potiphar in that sort of way. And then when he gets thrown into prison, guess what he gets to do? Run the jail. You see, he has this gift of strategic leadership that other people don't have and he's been working on it his whole life. And that's what puts him in this situation. And he never resented it. He always embraced it. Some of us have gifts by God that we resent and wish we had other ones. I have no idea if Joseph wanted this gift. I have no idea if he wanted all the responsibility always to be on him. But I know for a fact Joseph embraced who God created him to be. Are you embracing who God's created you to be? It's a great question to ask. But it says that these, this cupbearer and this bread maker had a dream. And it says they were dejected. You would probably write that off as just some small thing. But actually, this is a big deal. The word is actually used over and over again to reference raging of seas or raging of something else and anger. And so these people looked like children that were startled by a dream. And they woke up frightened where they couldn't calm down. So they had this physical response. The truth is, is that the Pharaoh had these people called magicians and counselors and others that would help people interpret dreams and calm them down. And they were exposed as officials to these same sort of people to help them out. So they're here in prison. They don't have any of these people around. So not only does the dream scare them, but it also causes them to act in a response that made it visibly they were upset. They treated the dream not as if it was something weird that went from within, because trust me, we can all dream up stuff that's weird, I believe. But it was, it was treated as if something invaded their mind. And when it invaded their mind, they saw it as possibly something demonic or heavenly or godly that was causing them to go crazy. And Joseph offers them a little peace. He says, it doesn't matter that you don't have the counselors. Don't the interpretations belong to God himself? Why don't you share them with me? Joseph took a risk right here. But he did it for God himself. You know, ancient thinking of dreams is that they're primarily a vehicle of the divine revelation. Something God wants them to know. Dreams play an important role all throughout scripture. Although we neglect them a lot, we're not even sure how they're used today in America. But still in the East, in countries that are hostile to Christianity, I assure you people are becoming believers in Jesus Christ because of dreams they've had about Jesus. It's pretty amazing. Verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, in my dream, I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, it clusters, ripened into grapes, and Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. And I took the grapes, squeezed them into the Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said. 
The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift your head and restore you to your position. You will put the Pharaoh's cup in his hand just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. Now, if you were a strategic leader, the first word I, I use to describe that type of leader is strategic. If you saw an opportunity where you could sow a seed and possibly plant some hope in to invest in, you would take it as a good strategic leader. This person he just interpreted a dream to, he told is just about to go back be in the king's service. So Joseph offers a little bit of leadership because this is who Joseph is. He says, verse 14, but when all goes well with you, you should follow these steps. Remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to the Pharaoh. Get me out of this prison. It's a four step. Step one, remember me. Step two, show me kindness. Refer to me. Step three, mention me to the Pharaoh. Make it a priority. Mention me to Pharaoh to get me out. And then he goes on to share why. And he uses what I think is the cupbearer just experienced an injustice by being thrown in prison. He says, if there's anybody that can sympathize with my plight, it's gotta be this cupbearer, right? So he says to him, I was forcibly carried off from the land of Hebrews. And even here, I've done nothing to deserve being put in the dungeon. Joseph's plan is simple. He wants to be freed. He wants to be freed. He wants to experience what he rightfully deserves. And he wants the opportunity just to go home, possibly. It's a great plan. It's an easy plan. It won't, you know, it won't take any skin off of his back to be able to share this with the Pharaoh. Obviously, he's already shared with him something that's going to be a blessing with him and settled him. Why don't you help care for this person? That's good strategy. I would say that's a good plan, even. But then verse 16, when the chief baker saw Joseph had given favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for, uh, for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Joseph said, this is what it means. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, the Pharaoh will lift you off your head, impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Notice what he doesn't add on this. As a strategic thinker and planner, Joseph does not give him an assignment. You don't line yourself up with people that are failing. You line yourself up with people that will succeed, right? Joseph is bright. He's wise. He's shrewd. He gives him the amount of attention he needs, but he knows that God needs a whole lot more. But there's something about the dreams. It's interesting. These two dreams are fairly different. One, the cupbearer puts the cup in the hand of the Pharaoh. In this one, he has this bread on top of his head. You might not know this. You don't even have to take notes on this. But according to hieroglyphics, what we actually find out is there's 38 different kinds of cakes in the kingdom of Egypt and 57 different types of bread in the kingdom of Egypt. The idea is that this basket is full. It's on his head. It's in the place of someone that's going to serve, okay, on his head. He's carrying it along, but it never gets to the Pharaoh, does it? Instead, birds come and peck it. These aren't Cinderella birds. These don't sing to him. They don't get him dressed and comb his hair like in Cinderella. No, these are vultures. They come and they bite away at it. And in Old Testament scripture, it actually says that those are unclean animals. 
And so it's actually a fairly graphic story of what that vision is and probably why it bothered him so much. Verse 20. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday. He gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of the officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position. So they once again put the cup in the Pharaoh's hand, but he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them. And his interpretation, and this next verse is the important one, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. Joseph's plan failed. You know, Joseph experienced getting hurt again. He was faithful to God. He gave God the glory. It was a good strategy. I don't think it was wrong to actually try to plan this, but it just didn't work. Because it was Joseph's plan. It wasn't God's plan. And the truth is, is when we're seeking God, we don't know if it's God's plan oftentimes, and it's sometimes good things that we try to come up with with the church. When we go do ministry, we don't know if it's God's plan. We don't know if it's our plan. But we prayerfully hope that God walks with us and shows us and guides us through these plans. But the truth is, is it's if you are willing to put yourself out there for God and depend on other people like he's asked you to do whenever he calls the church together, you're gonna get hurt. One thing I can guarantee you is you're going to get hurt. According to Brene Brown, there's the, the four people that hurt us the worst in life are actually, number one, parents. Counselors have obviously figured this out. That's the first place they start when they start asking you questions. They're trying to find that origin. Number two is teachers. Every one of us can probably remember a teacher in our life, either high school, middle school, or elementary school, that said something to us that's affected us even to today. We believe what they said, and it's affected us even to today. And it might be good that spurred you on to encourage you to go forward, or it might have been something that harmed you that you believe that's a lie about you, that you keep telling yourself. Number three is pastors and clergy. And number four are our peers. What does that tell me? That tells me if you come to Grace Bible Church, you're going to get hurt. If you go to any church, you're gonna get hurt. If you're involved in the mission of God and you are seeking to walk with people, it's gonna happen. You're gonna be disillusioned by other people. And I can't help but look at this list. I'm a parent, I'm a teacher, I'm a pastor, and I'm a peer. I'm dangerous. That's one of the reasons in Scripture it warns those that are wanting to be teachers and pastors to be careful and to take special prayer and consideration when going into it because you'll be judged harder because you affect others. But these are people you trust and people God desires for you to live with. I want to encourage you. If you're going to be a part of God's ministry, he's going to bless you, but you're also going to experience hurt. Number two, God's perfect timing. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile. When out of the river, there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. And after them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbanks. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell back asleep. He had a second dream. 
Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. Then after them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, and they were thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy, full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up, because it had been a dream. In the morning, he was troubled, just like the cupbearer was. So he sent for all his magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told him his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Now, Pharaoh, I think one of the reasons they couldn't interpret the dreams was, number one, obviously these dreams were sent by God. But what you might not realize is that they had a school called the House of Life in Egypt. And this House of Life had this book of dreams that they would teach their counselors, their magicians, and their interpreters. So if there was a pun or there was some imagery, they would line it up with something else. And they would say, that's what this means, that's what this means, that's what this means. That way they were able to give encouragement and lead others to be able to, uh, to have comfort in their dreams and in their visions or whatever else might be going on. The problem with this situation is that the Pharaoh had two dreams, and he was convinced they were the exact same dream and same interpretation. That didn't line up with what the books told them. So none of the counselors could actually be an answer and a blessing to him. So it left Pharaoh saying, what in the world am I going to do? Verse 9, the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. I was in prison once, skip down to verse 12, and a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain guard. When we told him our dreams, he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly how he told them to us. So, verse 14, Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had been shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can actually interpret it. And Joseph again faithfully declares God's sovereignty. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. When he takes Joseph out of this prison, he shaves his face and shaves his hair, and he puts him in this garb that is meant to be before the priest or before the Pharaoh. And what you find out is actually he never puts on prison garbs again. And when he does that, he no longer looks like a Hebrew, but he looks like someone from Egypt. So just in case something happens coming up where he could possibly be misidentified in the presence of people that might have known him as a Hebrew, this is what happens. Through God's timing, he experiences this change. And Joseph gives Pharaoh the answer. In verse 17 through 21, Pharaoh tells him his dream again. In 22 through 24, he tells him the dream of the grain of salts, or stalks. In verse 25, Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of the Pharaoh are one and the same. That's exactly what Pharaoh wanted to hear. He says, the seven cows are the seven good years, the fat cows. But the other cows, they're going to be seven years of famine. And it's so severe that you won't even remember the abundant years. And he says the same thing about the stalks of grain. But then Joseph does what Joseph does. As a strategic leader, he offers advice after he interprets the dream of famine and the abundance, right? Verse 33. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years 
that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of the Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held and reserved for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh. He looks around at his counselors. They said, we like that plan. And they turn to Joseph and they say, who could do this but you? You obviously are the one that speaks to God. And so you should be in charge of it. You see, earlier, Joseph's desire was to be freed so that he could experience freedom. But God's timing was better. God waited until there was the perfect opportunity for the life that Joseph had been prepared for. All that strategic leadership, there had to come a position where they needed someone like that. And at just the right time, at a time Joseph did not expect it, God offered him a position through the Pharaoh to be able to not only bless an entire nation and himself, but to bless the entire world. God's timing's better. And often we seek and we are discouraged by God because he isn't answering prayers based off of our timing. We get upset because our timing does not seem to be lining up with our desires. But it's possible God has a different reason. And he's waiting for something else. You know what I've realized about God's timing? His timing's always better. Even if we don't understand it. The other thing I've realized about God's timing is we don't recognize it while we're going through it. But afterwards, when we look back, we see his hand on everything. And when it happens, it comes quickly. The problem is, is many of us lead our lives as if God's timing isn't better. But sometimes God's timing is there to prepare you for something you aren't ready for yet. Or what he has for you isn't ready yet. The great thing about waiting on God's timing is that it does exactly what we saw in Romans 5. It tests your faith. And through that, you gain perseverance, character, and hope. Don't abandon God. He hasn't abandoned you. The last section is what I'd call God's abundant blessing. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Verse 41, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. He took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Isn't it interesting that earlier Tamar took Judah's scroll, his rope, his staff, so that she could receive a blessing later on that he finally was ready to give. And here, Pharaoh gives him all these because he's experiencing God's blessing. And he had him ride around. And they called out and said, this guy's the guy that's in charge. Turn to him. And then verse 44 says, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephanath Paneah, which means something along the lines of God lives and God speaks. 
And then he said, I've got something great for you. I've got a daughter. You're one of these religious types. Well, there's this city called On that's a religious city. And I've got a daughter named Aneth, and she's going to be yours. And guess what? She's been studied and done all this stuff. So Joseph receives a wife through the Pharaoh. And then during the years, the seven years of plentiful harvest, he begins collecting grain. And when they measured the grain, they would take it by bundle loads, handfuls. They would call this a handful, and they'd stack it up, and they were tracking it. And the greatest strategic leader that kept track of everything all over couldn't even keep count of how much grain they collected. That's how much in abundance they received. But Joseph's life reflected abundance as well because through his wife, he was given two sons. Manasseh, which means remember or forget. I'm sorry, it means forget. Uh, referring to that God, uh, that he's forgotten his hurt from his brothers and his family. And then the next one's Ephraim. And it says, God has made me fruitful in spite of my sufferings. He's made me fruitful is what the two brothers together mean. And so Joseph himself is experiencing abundant blessing right here because God's timing was better. Then it goes on to say, and finish this way. Verse 53, the seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end. The seven years of famine began, just as Joseph said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt, there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, people cried out to Pharaoh for food. And Pharaoh told them, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. But what he was actually saying was because he gave him another name. He said, go to God lives and God speaks to receive an answer for your cries out. Joseph became a witness to the entire world about the goodness of God. And the last verse in the whole section says, verse 57, all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. Joseph does not experience the abundant blessing when he wants it because God has a different plan for him. God doesn't have a plan for him to be restored God has a plan for him to be restored along with the whole world to be able to be fed from a man who was just titled God lives and God speaks. He becomes a witness to the world which is later what the Hebrews are supposed to be when they leave the land of Egypt. God's timing is always better but we have trouble believing that. You know, Scripture says when Jesus came, we were all sinners. And even though we weren't asking for him to come, he came and provided for us anyway because God's timing mattered. Do you remember what Jesus recited when he was on earth over and over again when people were asking him, just tell us if you're the Messiah, tell us if you're a prophet. He would say, the time has not come. But at the perfect time, during the perfect moment, Jesus died on the cross for us and rose from the dead. So it helps me to trust that at the perfect time, at the perfect moment, 
Jesus Christ will return. And until then, we just hope and pray. It might not be according to when we would want it. But I can be assured when we look back at it in the future, we'll know that God's timing was perfect. You might be hurting. You might have suffered. You might be experiencing pain and loss. But I promise you, one day you'll look back at it and you'll understand why. And until then, I encourage you to persevere in your faith. Let it build your character so that you reflect the goodness of God and hope for the one day when he returns. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy, your grace, your love and kindness. And we thank you for your timing most of all. We don't understand it. But I'm glad we don't, Lord. Because if we did understand your timing, we might try to speed it up where it actually hinders what you want us to do. Father, I pray for each of these individuals here today that as they leave here, they grow in their faith and their confidence in you. And that we might walk as a church body that grows in hope and displays it to many. It's by your son's name we pray, amen.